0: The Hauntings at Frother part three of three, the story of Kirtan. The funeral feast for Thorod the chieftain and his fellow fishermen was over. Around the homestead the folk celebrated the promise of good fortune from Ran the sea goddess because the dead men had come to drink their own funeral ale. But Kirtan could not share in their happiness. The loss of his father was bad enough but the celebration all around him made him feel even worse. He could almost feel his uncle, Snorri the Priest, leaning over his shoulder and crossing himself against the pagan celebrations happening in front of him. It had been many years since Kirtan had crawled into bed with his mother, but on the last night of the funeral feast he slipped over to her and lay himself down on the soft linen undersheet. Thurid wrapped the blood-coloured silk oversheet around them both, "'and gently stroked his hair, as she hadn't done since he was an infant. "'It's over now,' she said softly. "'The funeral feast is done. By tomorrow night they will be gone.' "'And Bjorn the shepherd, and Thorea and Thorgrima, and all the others?' said Kirtan. "'The dead of the plague still stood around the edges of the settlement, watching everything.' Thurid said nothing.' but simply pulled the scarlet silk closer around them. The next evening, everyone was in good spirits as they lit the fires in the great hall. But no sooner had they sat down, when the great double doors were flung open and Thorod appeared once more, his fishermen behind him. As they had done throughout the funeral feast, they walked in silence through the hall, sat down in silence by the fires, and started wringing out their wet clothes. Water pooled across the floor, but no matter how long they sat wringing out their jackets and shirts and even their hair, they never became any less wet, and no matter how long they sat by the fire, they never became any warmer to the touch. Their skin was blanched white but weirdly smooth, not wrinkled as it would be in a bath, and their eyes bulged. The living started to inch further away, getting colder as they retreated into the shadows. One man was just hesitantly shifting forward a little to get closer to the fire when the double doors suddenly swung open again. Thoria Woodenleg stood in the doorway, flanked by his wife Thorgrima Witchface and Bjorn the Shepherd and all the other dead plague victims behind them. Their skin was a patchwork of weird colours, some blanched white, some flaring up red, some dark brown. Their whole flesh seemed to be covered in a waxy sheen, and green mould grew across their stomachs and around their bodies. The living shrank back from the fire and hugged the shadows. Oblivious, the dead strode through the hall and sat themselves down by the fire next to Thorod and his fishermen. Thorod, or the shell that looked like what used to be Thorod, glared angrily at them. In response, Thoria Woodenleg picked a lump of mould off his wooden shin and flung it at Thorod, Thorod stood up and swung a fist uselessly towards Thorir, who leaned backwards, but neither would move away from the fire. Thorgrima Witchface joined her husband, peeling mould from her belly and throwing it at the fishermen, who responded with inarticulate roars of fury, but still neither group would move. "'What can we do?' hissed one of the men as the living fell back to the cold, dark corners of the hall. "'We should light a smaller fire tomorrow,' said Kirtan. "'We'll go to the cook hall and light the meal fires there. "'They won't be able to fit around it. "'And we can keep an eye on the food stores as well.' He had not forgotten why Thorod had risked the winter seas in the first place and was anxious to make sure no more fish stock mysteriously disappeared. The next evening, as the sun slowly sank below the horizon, Kirtan led the men in kindling their meal fires in the smaller hall next to the food supplies. But it did no good.' No sooner had they sat down to their meal than Thorod and his men appeared in the doorway, with Thorir and his group not far behind. Now there was even less room for them all, and the dripping, wet, dead fishermen were scrunched up against the mouldy, dead plague victims, each picking at the mould and waxy skin on the other, gurgling and grunting at each other. The living went without light and without dinner for another evening. Much good that did us, grumbled the men. All right, said Kirtan, all right. Tomorrow night we will light two fires. First we will light the fires in the great hall to draw these dead men like moths. Then we will light this smaller fire and we will stay and eat here and hope that they will be content with the greater hall. No one else had any better ideas, so the next night they did as he suggested. To Kirtan's mild surprise, it actually worked. Thorod and his men made their grand entrance to the great hall, followed closely by Thorir and his people, and the living slipped quietly away to the smaller hall, where they could enjoy their meal and relax by the fire in peace. The next night they did so again, and again and again throughout the whole of Yuletide. Even when the sacred season had finished and the coloured ribbons had been taken down, still the dead came night after night after night. Kirtan and the others huddled around their small fire, taking what warmth and comfort they could. It was not much. Yuletide drew to a close, and just when it seemed things couldn't get much worse for the settlement, the plague returned. Strange noises had been heard coming from the fish stockpile, and yet again their fish were disappearing for no apparent reason but the fear of starvation was lessened by the fact the settlement's numbers were dropping even faster than their fish were disappearing. Five of the men simply ran away into the night. Whether it was fear of the ghosts, fear of famine or fear of plague was not certain, but they were gone. Another four women and two men died of the plague, so that by the time they were midway through January, there were only seven healthy adults in addition to Kirtan and Thurid living at the homestead though the ranks of the dead joining Thorio Woodenleg at the fires were growing. Those who remained were more afraid of trying to leave than of staying. Night after night, the dead took the greater fire while they took the lesser, but any fire at all was better than a lonely trek through the enduring dark and the thick snow. The frost could turn toes and fingers black and brittle if it didn't kill you outright, and food supplies were scarce everywhere. No boats were willing to put out to sea, and the farmers were keeping their sheep and goats close, preparing for the spring and the lambing season. The wind was wild, and the very air was cruel. For those who stayed, it was no choice. They simply remained with the tiny fire and even tinier stockpile, because it was better than no fire and no stockpile. One evening, as they sat by the fire, the strange noise came from the food stores once again, and Kirtan felt as if he would go quite mad if he couldn't find out what was causing it and stop it. Screaming in impotent fury, he raced through to the store, with his father's club in his hands. Thurid, panicked by his sudden madness, hurried after him with a torch. As Kirtan pushed open the door, he caught a glimpse of something wet and silvery disappearing into the fish piles. He flung himself into the smelly pile, thrashing about at random with the club, between his wild movements and the slippery fish, he soon fell down hard on his bottom. As he pulled himself up to sit, he saw it slipping out of the door a huge, glistening, wet tail like a seal's, its dark fur shimmering sleekly in the light of a torch held in his mother's shaking hand as she stood watching by the door. Thurid jumped back as Keartan scrambled to his feet and threw himself out the door and after the image of the tail, which had disappeared into the darkness. Across the settlement he followed it, seeing a dark movement open the double doors of the great hall, just a crack and a dark shape slip inside. Thinking nothing of the dead still sitting by the fire, Kirtan hauled open the doors and followed the mysterious shape into the hall, waving the club around. Thurid came after him at a distance, pulling the doors shut behind her and holding out her torch to see what was happening. The dead paid them no attention, being still too busy poking and prodding at each other, But as they made their way into the hall, the most bizarre sight met their eyes. A great seal's head rose up from out of the floorboards and stopped there, swaying slightly and looking right at them. Kirtan swung the club at it, but the creature barely seemed to notice. It simply sank back into the floor and raised itself up again a few feet further on. Slowly it turned, and instead of looking at them, it looked straight at Thurid's bedgear where it lay neatly folded in a warm corner of the hall. Again, Kirtan swung the club, and he felt it connect with the seal's head with a satisfying thwomp. But the seal simply sank for a moment and came up again, this time rising higher and still staring at the beautiful bedgear that Thurid had taken from Thugunna's possessions. Twice more, Kirtan hit it, but each time it rose higher up until it stood proudly almost to its flappers, still staring at Thurid's bedgear. Finally, in despair, Kirtan tossed aside the club and snatched up a great sledgehammer, which he brought down hard on the creature's head. He felt it connect, but somehow the seal was still unharmed, though it shook its head and turned back towards them. Desperate, Kirtan struck it over the head with the sledgehammer two more times. It was still intact, but it waggled its head about a bit and slowly sank back down into the floor under his repeated blows. "'What does it mean?' he cried. But Thurid was swaying gently where she stood, and she dropped the torch onto the wet floor where it sputtered out. Kirtan, I... I don't feel very well, she said. (laughs) Help me, Uncle, I beg of you, Kirtan pleaded. He had left his mother lying in her scarlet silk sheet, weakened and unable to work. Alone he had risked the long, dark trek to Hollyfell, for there were not enough people left at the settlement to spare anyone else. It had snowed constantly throughout the whole journey, it made travelling treacherous, but at least it kept the snow soft and sticky. He had walked as far as possible during the few brief hours of daylight, and holed up wherever he could at night, in caves, in abandoned barns, and at the halls of other settlements, where he had been careful to tell no one of his real troubles. He was fetching his uncle because his mother was unwell. That much he had told them, and that much was true. He had no intention of telling them he was also plagued by ghosts, in addition to actual plague, and possibly being chased by mysterious magic seal creatures. He suspected being too honest about these problems might have got him kicked out into the night again. Now, safe within the wooden walls of the church, he knelt at his uncle's feet and wept. He wept all the tears he hadn't shed as he watched his dead father sit at the fire night after night, and he wept for their home and their lost fish stock, and he wept for his mother, not knowing whether she was dead or alive. My child, said Snorri the priest, cradling his young nephew's head in his hands, I think you know what you must do. Where did your mother's bedgear come from? For Kirtan had told him about the seal creature staring at the bedgear, but not about Forguna. "'It was Thorgunas, the woman who died first, back in the autumn,' he said with a sniffle. (laughs) "'She told my father to burn it.' Snorri sat back and bit his lip on some harsh words he could have said about his sister just then. Looking down at the boy's tear-stained face, he decided that perhaps now was not the time, but he resolved to visit Frother as soon as the weather improved and give Thurid a piece of his mind if she was still alive. "'So, my son,' "'What do you think you should do?' he said to Kirtan, "'as calmly and gently as he could manage. "'That's it?' said Kirtan. "'We just burn the silk sheet and the other bed gear and all our problems are over?' "'Well, no,' Snorri sighed. "'I think this has gone beyond such a simple solution, though it might make a good start. "'Burning the bed gear should stop the plague and rid you of the seal creature.' "'To stop your dead from coming to your fires, you may need more. "'I suggest you call them to a door-doom. "'If there is anything left of your father, or Thore wooden Woodenleg, or any of the others, "'they will come, and they will be bound by its decisions.' "'Very well, Uncle,' said Kierton, rising. "'Though I doubt that will be the end of our troubles. "'We have only seven men and women left, not counting my mother. "'We will barely be able to plant next year's crop, never mind mount a fishing expedition.' I will send people with you to boost your numbers, said Snorri. My son, Thord Cowsy, is not much older than you, and he longs to get away from me and be his own man. He will be glad to go with you and to stay with you. And I'm sure I can spare another half-dozen or so men, and one of my priests will come to bless the waters and provide absolution, especially for your mother. Thank you, uncle, said Kirtan. I don't know what to say or how to repay you. Keep your mother out of trouble, said Snorri with a smile. Look after your cousin and lead your people. They will need you. By the time Thord Thordkowsy and their party made it back to Frother through the ice and the snow, it was Candlemass. The days were just a little longer, which made their hearts just a little lighter, and the joy that greeted the arrival of eight healthy young men and a priest was unparalleled. Kirtan was almost afraid to ask after his mother. All the other plague victims had died within days and he had convinced himself that she must already be gone, or rather, sitting by the fire at night with his father. He was delighted, if baffled, to discover that although she had not left her bed since he left and was eating only the smallest bowls of gruel, she was still alive. "'My father must have been praying for her,' said Cowsey sensibly. "'Since before I arrived?' said Kirton. "'I expected her to be dead before I reached him. "'Not that I'm not very glad she isn't.' "'Or perhaps,' said Thord a man who did not know when to stop, "'perhaps the cursed sheets are keeping her in a kind of half-life, "'just to torture her further.' "'Kirtan made no reply, but walked quickly into the great hall, "'to the corner where his mother slept. "'Thurid was rolled up in her red silk sheet, barely breathing.' Her skin was thin and stretched, her bones sticking out through what was left of her weak body. Kirtan expected her to protest, but she only moaned as he took hold of the blood-coloured silk and rolled her out of it, shoving it at Thordkausi while he pulled the linen sheet out from underneath her. Unable even to raise her head, Thurid rolled back onto the dusty floor, buried her head in the corner and pulled her own threadbare cloak over herself. Kirtan and Cowsey made a fire outside as quickly as possible, to burn the bedgear. As the flames licked around the soft fabric, Kirtan thought he heard the cry of a seal a long way off. A happy cry, or a triumphant cry, perhaps. The priest who had come with them blessed the fire, and then set to blessing every building and every person in the settlement with a jug of holy water. "'Well, it's burned,' said Kirtan, as he squinted against the smoke in the wind." "'Now for the door-doom.' "'As the sun turned soft orange against the sky, Kirtan lit the fires in the great hall "'to draw in the dead one last time. "'But he would not let them enter. "'He and Thordkowsy stood outside the great double doors, "'swords in their hands, and blocked the way. "'You are s- <coughs> summoned,' Kirtan said, "'his voice breaking only a little, <coughs> "'to a door-doom.' Only when both groups of the dead, Thorods and Thoriers, had nodded their heads in assent would Kirtan and Thordcausi stand aside to let them into the hall. Thordcausi stepped to one side, and Kirtan stood at the end of the long fire his sword still raised. I charge all of you, he said in a loud voice, with going about this settlement without permission from me, he swallowed his nerves, it's chieftain. His voice cracked as he spoke some words coming out higher and some lower than others but no one laughed not the living nor the dead i charge you with unlawful killing with taking life and luck from the men and women of this settlement how do you plead do you accept the charges for an agonizing minute there was silence no one had heard anything but inhuman grunts from any of the dead and Kirtan was terrified that they would simply ignore him and sit down again. But then, finally, Thorod spoke. "'We acknowledge that we are guilty of these crimes,' he said, roughly, slowly, almost sadly. We await sentencing.' For a moment, he seemed almost like Thorod again, and Kirtan suddenly found he wanted him to stay just a little longer. Thore wooden Woodenleg, Kirtan said, turning to the plague victim's leader instead. I sentence you to exile. Go and rejoin the dead where you belong. Here have I sat while I might, rasped Thorea sadly, and he turned and walked out of the door and was never seen there again. Beyond the shepherd, said Kirtan. I sentence you to exile. Go and rejoin the dead where you belong. I go, said Bjorn, turning away. I wish only that I had gone sooner. For witch Witchface, said Kirtan, I sentence you to exile. Go and rejoin the dead where you belong. Here I stayed while I could, she said, and followed the men out of the door. And so Kirtan went through all the dead, calling on each by name, sentencing them to exile and watching them leave. Finally, only Thorod was left. Thordcousey, perhaps you... No, said Thordcousey kindly. This is your place, Kirtan. You must do it. Kirtan left his spot at the head of the fire and stood before Thorod. They were now the same height, and he could look the thing that had been his father directly in the eyes. His own eyes brimmed with tears, and he thought he even saw an answering drop roll from Thorod's eye down his wet dead face Goodman Thorod he started and his voice seized up Clearing his throat he started again as firmly as he could <coughs> Goodman Thorod I sentence you to exile Go and rejoin the dead where you belong The dead eyes softened a little and Thorod spoke I can have no peace here he said We all must go to wherever it is that we belong and he left but as he turned to go he reached out ever so briefly to squeeze Kirtan's shaking hand and then he was out of the doors and gone Kirtan was a good chieftain, and under his leadership the settlement was soon thriving again. They were even able to keep the priest Snorri had sent to them, so there were no more drinking parties in honour of Ran the goddess, and the whole settlement was blessed. Gravestones were erected in place of the poles, and some of the men even raised tiny mounds over the top of them in honour of the old ways. Thurid never slept in silk or linen bedsheets again, but used rough wool and undyed cotton to the end of her days. She recovered fully from the plague, but less so from the loss of her husband and friends. Ever after, she swung in her moods from bitter to sad to quiet to loudly angry at the world. And she could often be found wandering among the little burial mounds, talking as if to her old friends. And who knows, perhaps they could still hear her. The End Hello, welcome back to Creepy Classics. Uh, this is the podcast retelling and discussing ancient medieval and early modern ghost stories. Uh, and that was part three of a three part special. Uh, this story was taken from the medieval Icelandic saga Elbigja saga. Uh, this is sections 54 to 55. Uh, because it's about a haunting that has an infectious epidemic quality to it Um, so this is why this is our plague special Uh, it's a ghost story connected with the idea of uh, plague and infection I think there may have been a tiny bit of Tolkien creeping into my writing style because I've been working on Tolkien lately on an article that I'm Uh, writing for a book about classics and Tolkien, um, and then you combine that with looking at a Scandinavian medieval saga, and I think there's probably bits of Tolkien in there, although nothing like as good as Tolkien, obviously. So, as usual, I've fiddled with the story a little bit in the retelling just to create a stronger uh, modern short story. Um, I've combined an earlier incident that I'd skipped um, in part two with The Seal's Head, with a later incident that does come a bit later on with the seal's tail. Um, I just put them both into one incident because that worked better for the creating three separate short stories, or well, three interconnected short stories. Um, some scholars have suggested the seal might actually be Thorguna, and I would say who if I could remember. <laughs> Unfortunately, I've done so much reading for this. I can't remember who said that. I'm really sorry. Uh, somebody did. Um, they were connecting it possibly with Celtic selkie stories about um, women who turn into seals and vice versa. I don't know if it's Thorgunna or not. We saw Thorgunna as a ghost earlier on in the story anyway, um, where she was acting as a perfectly normal woman and serving everybody dinner. And she makes a point of having a Christian burial. She's she's very Christian, um, which doesn't necessarily suggest pagan. Sulky stories. On the other hand, Thorgunna is from the Hebrides. She is. Whether she'd be Pictish or Scottish or Irish, (laughs) but she's somewhere in that region. Um, Gaelic, Gaelic, put it that way. She's Celtic. She's definitely Celtic. Rather than Norse, of course. Most of the characters uh, would be descended probably from Norwegian colonists, among others, Um, but Scandinavian, Norse heritage, uh, hence ran the sea goddess who's who's norse and their worship of her whereas thorgunna is celtic so it may be that the seal is meant to be thorgunna um it may be connected with the idea of celtic women having these mysterious powers and thorgunna is she is a mysterious character uh, you never quite understand what's going on with her um so it could be that the seal is actually meant to be thorgunna Now, walking, grunting, sometimes talking corpses are obviously not real. Um, In my description of them, I did try to incorporate some reality. So I did try to describe the process of decay that really happens to a dead body. Um, In my description of the the zombies, um, it is obviously not completely accurate to what would really happen to a dead body i've combined several processes that would happen over a period of time together i mean they're they're zombies so i wasn't gonna be too worried about it um but i did try (laughs) so the text the the obigya saga describes the plague victims as moldy that's something that comes right from the poem and they fling the mold at the drowning victims who are constantly soaking wet So I took the information from Richard Shepard's Unnatural Causes, which is an absolutely brilliant book. Uh, Richard Shepard is a forensic pathologist and the book is essentially his his memoir. It is absolutely fascinating. I should say it says Dr. Richard Shepard on the front. Nearly everything I read is by Dr. Somebody um, because most of it's by people with PhDs. In this case, it's a medical doctorate. Uh, But basically, this is where uh, some of this information is coming from. There are three types of decomposition putrefaction, mummification, and adipocere. So putrefaction is the one you're probably thinking of <laughs> when you think of dead bodies and what happens to them. They putrefy. Mummification can happen naturally. Uh, so this is something uh, that I'm familiar with um, from grave sites in Egypt. And this is probably where the Egyptians got the idea of the deliberate mummification practices they developed. We don't know for sure because mummification developed so early in Egyptian history. Um, But chances are they observed natural mummification and then worked out a way of bringing it about deliberately because bodies will mummify uh, in very dry conditions so desert conditions um, Shepard actually mentions also um, in very dry lofts attics and cupboards sometimes Um, and mould is most likely to be found on mummified bodies um, these are the ones that will grow green mould, particularly around the stomach and intestines, where the most bacteria are. Damp conditions produce adipocere. This is where the body's saturated fats become waxy. Uh, and Shepard mentions Utzi the Iceman, um, who is a very famous uh, body found preserved in a glacier. Now, this presumably would also affect the drowned like the bog bodies. So the bog bodies are bodies found uh, buried in bogs <laughs> from the European Iron Age uh, for a period of about 1,000 years, um, crossing over with the Roman period. So one of the famous British ones is Lindoman, who is either just before or during the early stages of the Roman occupation of Britain. So the bog bodies and Ötzi, um both have kind of... The skin has gone dark, sort of stretched across the body, but also, particularly Utsy, Etsy, sorry, has this waxy sheen, waxy quality. So I basically took the green mould that forms on mummies, and you might, I think, I'm right in saying, get that frozen corpses are sort of partly dipocere and partly mummification, because the the fact the water is frozen <laughs> is also sort of conditions are similar to very dry conditions. Um so I assumed that mould might also affect frozen corpses, and especially since the mould is in the text. So that is from a real observation, presumably, of dead bodies from the writers of the text. So I'm assuming that when a body is frozen, like see, it's partly adipocere and partly mummification. I'm not an expert in forensic pathology, but that's the assumption I'm working on. Uh, the drowned bodies, that would be either a or simply waterlogging um so i've i've given the the plague victims the mould i have not given the soaked drowning victims the mould which matches the text anyway and i've given them all the waxy sheen of a so the reason that i am doing this text and i can tell you it was not easy getting my brain to think about medieval Iceland in January. (laughs) Um, If you're listening to this uh, later in time, this is May 2020. And it is the hottest, driest spring on record here in the UK. The sun is incredibly strong. We're coming up to the summer solstice. (laughs) I really struggled getting my brain to pretend it was January in Iceland to write this. the reason i'm doing it is because of this theme of infection that runs through this story The, the i've called it a plague the disease um that runs through the settlement and that kills so many people and the fact that the ghosts themselves or zombies or revenants revenants is probably the most accurate way to describe them the revenants um carry the disease so uh If you remember back to part two, initially Bjorn dies and then Bjorn attacks Thorea and at that point Thorea dies. So there's an element of contact with the dead, but also simply their presence. And it may be more their presence as a whole, rather than physical contact with them, that is thought to spread the disease. We tend to think of past medical practice as weird and unhelpful, that's because we tend to focus on the weird and unhelpful bits. It's more interesting to talk about bloodletting and leeches and all sorts of things. Um, Those are the bits that you get taught in school because teachers want to excite kids and they want to tell them things that sound cool and gross and weird. So those are the bits you hear about. Now, medieval physicians, they, they weren't stupid. And They weren't right about everything, (laughs) but they did have some notion of what was going on with the human body. So there's a poem called the Regimen Sanitatis Salernitamun, which was probably written in Italy in the 13th century, but it's probably following earlier texts, uh, using information from earlier texts. And this poem was known in medieval Iceland, so presumably the same earlier text might have been as well. And this poem, it's for a healthy lifestyle. And it offers plenty of sensible advice things like don't drink too much and wash your hands often wash your hands is right in there in the medieval advice for how to live a healthy life so really should have all known to do that already again for context it's 2020 so this has been uh, a topic on the news a lot lately now, the poem mentions three ancient authors, Hippocrates, Galen and Pliny, presumably Pliny the Elder, who wrote the natural history, and not Pliny the Younger, who wrote a bunch of letters complaining about his wives and sir- and slaves. So we can see that all of these ancient authors are still in use throughout the medieval period. Um, Galen is a physician from about the 2nd century AD or CE. He writes in Greek, he comes from modern Turkey, Um, And his texts, he wrote loads of texts on medicine and disease, practice of medicine. They were in use throughout the medieval into the early modern period. And of course, Hippocrates, the father of modern medicine, his texts were in use a very, very long time. And the Hippocratic Oath is still said by doctors, although they don't tend to actually um, follow the the actual treatment so much anymore and the version of the Hippocratic Oath they give is actually abbreviated um, because the oath involves uh, swearing things to the god Apollo and swearing not to cut anybody because surgery was a separate practice. Uh, There was medical doctors um, working on disease and health and surgeons who cut people up and although there's still some of that division in modern medicine they work a lot closer together, Uh, for Hippocrates they were completely separate areas of interest. So when I started looking into what Hippocrates had to say about infection and contagion, I found a few secondary sources written by medical practitioners, doctors, people who specialise in disease online, but they had a bit of a tendency to offer different descriptions of Hippocrates' approach to infection and contagion, and some of them directly contradict each other, and none of them give primary source references. Now, I think what's happened here is they have taken different bits of the Hippocratic corpus. So there are a whole bunch of texts that the author is given as Hippocrates. Some of them may have been written actually by Hippocrates. A lot of them were written not by Hippocrates himself, but by his later followers, people he trained, people working in the Hippocratic tradition. So there may be um, contradictions between different parts of the corpus because they may have been written by different people. So technically the Hippocratic corpus is a collection of texts in the tradition of Hippocrates. And we tend to just say they were all written by Hippocrates because it's quicker, it's easier, and it's how medieval people referred to them, certainly. Um, but they are potentially different authors. There's actually something similar in the Bible, the letters of St. Paul. Some of them we think were actually written by St. Paul. Some of them were written by people who followed St. Paul, followed his teachings, but not actually him. So the first letter to Timothy, scholars think, is actually not written by Paul at all, but by somebody else. So I think this is uh, what's going on with these secondary sources that are providing different (laughs) descriptions of what Hippocrates says about infection. Um, but I did eventually track down something written by an historian uh, that had some references in it. Um, so this is by Jacques Joanna. I do not know if I'm pronouncing that right. I apologise. Um, I can pronounce Jacques, but the, the second name I've no idea. Sorry. Uh, but he points out um, there are some themes through the Hippocratic Corpus, and he does specify the specific text this is coming from. So in the text called Breaths, uh, Hippocrates, or his followers, suggest that diseases are called by miasmata, That's bad air, miasmas, it's like poisonous air. Um, and there are differences between the religious conception of this and the medical one, but the medical one is basically that there is the air itself is bad for you, that breathing in the air, these poisonous airs, is what makes you sick. In another of the texts, The Nature of Man, Patients suffering from epidemic diseases are advised to breathe and eat as little as possible. So the eating as little as possible is a bit harder to justify. But they're they're advised to take very shallow breaths and try not to breathe too much because the belief is that the disease is in the air. Uh, And Joanna Joanna, notes uh, that in the Hippocratic corpus in general... There's a difference between a general disease that descends on a city, so that's like a plague, an infectious disease, which they say is caused by these miasmata, miasmas in the air, and individual disease, so a disease that affects one person but not everybody else, which they suggest is caused by poor diet, poor health, poor regimen. So the regimen is eating well, not drinking too much, sleeping properly, all the things that you do for good physical health, all of which I have to say are mostly... Mostly the same as what you'd say now, with a few exceptions. I mean, there is a bit in the the regimen Sanitatis Salernitamun, which suggests that uh, eating leeks increases fertility in young girls. So they're not always right, but they've got the basics down. And it is worth noting that if a disease is respiratory, it actually is born through the air in a way, um, as we know, if you have a respiratory disease that's caused, that's carried in cough droplets and things, OK, it's coming from a person. The ancients haven't understood that. They think it's in the air in general somehow. Um, but if you've got a bunch of people coughing in a room, it is the air in the room that will infect other people because the cough droplets will be born on the air. So, OK, technically they're wrong in that it's the cough droplets from the infected person that's actually causing the infection. But you are breathing it in through the air. That is, in fact, how you get COVID-19. It depends on the disease. So there were some ancient diseases like the plague of Athens that don't seem to have spread in that way. Some diseases require skin contact or contact of exchange of fluids, obviously sexually transmitted diseases, exchange of fluids. It varies depending on what the disease is. Uh, But again, they're, they're not entirely right, but they're not entirely wrong either. There will have been diseases that, will have appeared to all intents and purposes to be born through the air. There were other less medical suggestions as well, of course. (laughs) So in this story, we see infection brought by ghosts. Uh, Other Icelandic stories suggest that disease could be brought by other magical beings like trolls and fairies. Whether anybody believed that was the case is another matter because this is fiction. These are clearly fictional stories. They involve zombies hurling the mould from their bodies at each other. And I think it's safe to say that nobody in medieval Iceland thought that happened on a regular basis. Whether they thought it was possible or not, maybe is a bit of a different issue. But again, people in the ancient world aren't stupid, or the medieval world for that matter, they're not stupid. Um, it's possible that they didn't think ghost trolls or fairies brought disease, that they were just stories they enjoyed telling. On the other hand, there may have been some level of of belief, but considering medieval Iceland is Christian from the year 1000 onwards, more or less, um, it seems unlikely that they necessarily thought a lot of it was literally true, but they were good stories. It does suggest that there is that element of physicality to it. Um, They don't seem to be thinking of infection as in the air in quite the same way as Hippocrates although they would have probably followed Hippocrates and Galen, those are the kind of key medical texts throughout the medieval period, they do seem to consider the infection to need some kind of physical presence. The infection spreads because the ghosts are physically present in the room, whether or not you touch them. And whether they did understand that breathing on somebody could cause infection or not, I'm not sure, but you can see that in the story that these ghosts are very physical. They are, they are really revenants, not ghosts. Um, they are dead bodies. So the idea that they could bring the infection runs through the, the story, which is quite interesting. Some of this story is actually set over Christmas. Medieval Iceland has some fascinating Christmas traditions. Uh, there's a giant child-eating Christmas cat and a tradition of Yule lads who run around scaring people, possibly dressed as trolls. Uh, but most of them are known from slightly later dates. So that's why I haven't included any of those. The poem talks about Yuletide and it mentions, one of the earlier sections, that people didn't fast for Advent back then because Christianity was so new, they hadn't developed that tradition. But it doesn't, doesn't really describe any other Yule traditions. There are very few trees in Iceland. Uh, there used to be more. When people first colonised Iceland, there were forests before they were destroyed to make way for farmland. But the forests that were there were probably birch rather than evergreen. There's no mistletoe, there's no holly and not very much ivy. So I gave up on familiar Christmas traditions and I just invented the idea that they might decorate their homes with coloured ribbons. Um, The Yule Cat wants brightly coloured clothes. Um, to stop it eating children. So I thought, Okay, coloured ribbons makes sense as something you might do for Yuletide. Candlemas is the 2nd of February. So that's why toward the end of the story, they're finally starting to get a little bit more daylight. Uh, We're coming into February. The winter is easing just a tiny, tiny bit right at the end. You may have noticed that Snorri, the Catholic priest, has a son and seems not embarrassed about that fact Uh, so the rule of celibacy for catholic priests goes back to the fourth century ce but it wasn't always observed during the medieval period they were a very long way from rome in medieval scandinavia especially medieval iceland Um, and throughout medieval scandinavia married priests were common um, throughout the whole medieval period Uh, they obviously just decided they weren't too bothered about that particular rule and holy water is used quite frequently in catholic practice in general uh, one of the things you often do is you flick it at people um, so one easter uh, the priest at my church grabbed a branch from a nearby bush and used that for the holy water uh, usually they use a brush or you can just use your fingers um, and some of the easter services involve flicking holy water all over everybody um, and you can flick it at things as well so that's presumably what they're doing with the the blessing and the ghosts are finally got rid of, or revenants are finally got rid of, with a door doom. Uh, this sounds fabulously Tolkien. Um, this is a traditional Icelandic legal process. So medieval Icelandic law was based on private prosecutions. That means the victim or their family have to bring charges. That's pretty common across the ancient world as well. Um, that there is no state that will press charges for a murdered body that's randomly found and nobody knows. Uh, charges for any crime have to be brought by either the victim themselves or in the case of murder or somebody unable to do it for themselves their family can do it before 930 law had been carried out mainly by local chieftains now before this story takes place in 930 it became more formalized in theory Um, this story takes place in 1000 and is written a couple hundred years later so it's possible that the more formalized systems were actually not always carried out in practice, uh, especially early on. It's possible that the writer was trying to make it sound more historical by having this less formal, very, very sort of small private legal system, um, or it's possible that the doordooms just carried on even within the more formalized framework. And when Kirtan summons the dead to the doordoom and proclaims judgment, he's also taking his place as Thorod's heir, as his successor as chieftain. So in the saga, he summons Thorir Woodenleg and Thord Cowsey, his cousin, summons Thorod. But I thought it would be more effective to have Kirtan take over entirely and summon his father himself. That was another of my um, just uh, changes, just for the sake of the drama. The saga implies that there's quite a long session with a bunch of individual sentences, but it doesn't give any details. So in the end, I kept it fairly brief. All of those final statements for the shepherd, who I've named Bjorn, Thorith, Orgrima and Thora, those are all from the saga. It it does specify the final words of those main characters. Um, So I made sure to include them uh, and otherwise I kept it reasonably brief. So I hope you've enjoyed this incredibly unseasonal trip to medieval Iceland. (laughs) If you're listening to this at a much later date in winter, probably works better. Um, I just want to finish off by citing some of my sources. Again, I am a Roman historian. I am entirely reliant on the research of other people, really. I've, I've dug up a few primary sources for myself, but I'm really reliant on other people's work to understand medieval Iceland, about which I knew nothing before I started this. I should say medievalists.net has been great. I haven't cited each page I've used from it individually. Uh, It's a big website, loads of information about the medieval world. So that has been really useful. Um, The medieval Italian poem, or Latin poem, sorry, written in Italy, um, the Regimen Sanitatis Salernitanum is available online at uh, www.gudecookery.com slash regimen slash regimen. Regimen.htm, or you could just Google uh, Regimen Sanitatis Salonitanum, and you'll find it. Uh, I also used Greek Medicine from Hippocrates to Galen by Jacques Juana, an article, Private Creation and Enforcement of Law, a Historical Case by David Freeman. I accessed that through JSTOR, the journal storage uh, database. Uh, medieval Scandinavia from Conversion to Reformation, 800 to 1500, by Birgit Sawyer is Another book I used. Uh, Andrea Marashi's chapter in Paranormal Encounters in Iceland, 1150 to 1400, as well. That book is edited by Armin Jakobsen and Miriam Maybird, uh, but that chapter by Andrea Marashi was really useful, um, very, very helpful. And of course, Unnatural Causes by Richard Shepard, which I absolutely recommend. It is fascinating bit grim not going to lie but absolutely fascinating Uh, and particularly chapter 11 which is the chapter that breaks down the process of uh, decay uh, in the three different ways that that happens okay so I will go back somewhere warmer next month it will probably start to rain for the rest of the summer in the UK now I've said that but we'll, we'll go back to the Mediterranean next month and not go for a story quite so fantastically different from what we're living in right now Uh, but I hope you've enjoyed this insight into ideas about plague and infection and disease from the medieval world and I have to say I think one of the things about uh, ancient and medieval medicine is it's not as mad as you think it is and they they do have reasons for believing what they believe apart from the one bit of the Hippocratic Corpus where they think that when a woman has a cough it's because her uterus has floated up to her throat I mean that is just mad there's no excuse for that. But for the most part, um, they're not completely wrong. And the whole idea of poisonous air, if you have a respiratory disease, is not a million miles from the truth, even if it's not quite accurate. Uh, Our next episode will be in a month's time. I'm going back to my regular monthly schedule. So towards the end of June um, will be the next episode. And I look forward to seeing you then. Creepy Classics was written and performed by Juliet Harrison. Music composed and performed by Ed Harrison was produced by Juliet Harrison with assistance from Newman University.